Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your tender mercies and your loving kindness that you are constantly, perpetually pouring out on your people. We thank you for the mercy that is even in the preaching of your word and that we get to listen to your word and not only read and spoken, but preached, God, and expounded and pulled apart to find your rich truth. So we ask that you would help us to pull apart your words well and to read well. And we are looking forward to your Holy Spirit being active among us so that you could receive more glory as we learn more of the God that we love and the God that we serve. Bless this time as only you can bless this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The rest of our study in the book of Genesis, we will be looking at the life of Joseph. So we're really within a series, within a series of Genesis, studying the life of this man. We've been following him since he was 17 years old is when we first started to look closely at his life as he was in his father's household. And we've learned that Joseph is a man really who has it all. Right? He has it all. He has it going on externally, internally. The Bible makes a point of this. Externally, uh, Joseph had everything a person could want. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was the best looking man in your Bible. The words used to describe Joseph are never used to describe any other man in the entire Bible. So he was a man who was physically very attractive, but he was not only um, blessed by God physically, internally as well. Which is what we mean when we say this guy had it all. Because he was given unusual and extraordinary gifts and abilities by God so that he had many advantages over everyone else. But there was one thing that he lacked. He lacked character. Most 17-year-olds lack character. Because character takes time. And it takes more time than 17 years. And it takes experience. And so, to his credit, he is still a child. He is a very young man. But when we first saw him, in his father's household, he definitely did lack integrity. Do you remember the way that he came downstairs and joined his brothers at the breakfast table? Do you remember that scene? He'd had a couple dreams that the wise person, the one with discretion, would probably not share with his family, at least not in the kind of forum that he did. But Joseph was a man who appeared to be very self-absorbed very absorbed with himself and his eyes on himself and looking at himself. And so he told his brothers and his father about his dream that ended with all of them bowing down in submission to him. Totally self-absorbed. I had a great dream last night. An amazing dream. I think you guys will love it. Would you like to hear it? No thank you. Joseph, we don't want to hear another one of your stupid dreams. Well, here it is anyway. <laughs> Funny thing, you all bowed down to me and worshipped me like I was some kind of God or something in authority over you. And who's saying this? Joseph, almost the youngest child in the family and everyone's kid brother. So in his solar system, that is his life. You know where I'm going with this. Everybody is a planet that just is revolving around Joseph. He wasn't only self-absorbed, though. On the other hand, he had little to no self-awareness. He appears oblivious to how his actions are affecting those around him. You know people like this. Maybe you are people like this. 
no self-awareness. And this person says something or does something, and you're looking at them thinking, are you not aware of how that sounded? Do you not see how what you are doing is making everybody in this room extremely uncomfortable? You've taken the awkwardness up to new heights. And the person, you know this person, they are completely oblivious to it. They're not aware. And the trick is, it's really hard for them to become aware of it because by definition, they have no self-awareness. And so this is Joseph. Joseph, do you not understand? Your brothers hate you, Joseph. They hate you. You're now going to share a dream with them about how they one day are going to bow down to you and worship you. Have you no self-awareness, Joseph, of the effect that this is going to have on the people around you? They're going to hate you even more. He's inconsiderate, it appears. He does not have wisdom and he does not use discretion. Now to be fair, he was 17 years old. Only 17 years old. That was 17. And this is Joseph now. So at the start of chapter 40, he's about 28. He's about 28 years old and 10 years later, Joseph is a different man. Joseph is a different man in the chapters that we are now reading. He's considerate. We'll see that. We've seen that. He is wise. He is discreet. He has become a man of character. God has changed him. And soon, we'll see why God has changed him. We'll see what God has been preparing him for. Because what God has been preparing him for is going to require utmost character. Utmost character. He's going to be practically put in charge of Egypt for 14 very difficult years. Seven years of plenty that will require great restraint. And seven years of famine that will require profound administration. But above all, Joseph will need to be a man of character. And so let's see. Let's read what Joseph has become and how God has made him this man. Chapter 40. Joseph's about 28. Remember, or to bring you up to speed, he's about 28 and he has been falsely accused of a crime and he's been thrown in prison where he's been put in charge, this is the interesting thing about Joseph, where we see his extraordinary abilities. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's that guy. He is a slave. He's a prisoner. And in both of those positions, he still manages to climb what most of us would find to be a non-existent corporate ladder. But he finds it, and he rises to the top wherever he is. But he is in prison, verses 1-4. through four. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. We have the cupbearer here and the baker. These were not slaves. They actually will be called. They were officers. They would have been equal to the captain of the guard, actually, who is overseer of this prison. They would have been well-trusted men. They were responsible, ultimately, for the food and drink of the king. This would be their responsibility. What he drinks and what he eats would be their responsibility. And one of their chief concerns was that the king would not be poisoned. And so you wanted men who were trusted in this position because they would ensure that somebody 
tasted all the food, and somebody tasted all the drink before the king did so they could prevent the king from being poisoned. So that's who we're dealing with, with this cupbearer and this baker. They did something, we don't know what. They ticked off the pharaoh. They ticked off the king. He throws them in prison. Verse 5. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, you remember Joseph coming down in the morning following dreams before? When they were his own dreams. Let's see how he responds very differently here. He came down in the morning and he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? He's considerate, isn't he? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. Joseph has come a long way from coming down the stairs for breakfast and gloating about his dreams over his brothers who hate him. He comes down and is considered of these men who are obviously troubled by their dreams and then he's very careful to give credit to God and not to himself. We're going to see this on two occasions where he has an opportunity to take credit for something himself so that he can get the praise, so that he can get the glory and he defers it to God. And says, God is the one who can interpret dreams. So why don't you tell me your dreams and we'll see if God has a response. We'll see if God has an answer. Verse 9. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph. So first dream, the cupbearer. He said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me. And on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth. And the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. And I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. Joseph hears the cupbearer's dream. He interprets it. And what a nice dream. Isn't that a nice dream? And what a nice interpretation. Oh, don't you wish all dreams were like that? Just a sweet dream. And grapes and cups and fruit and vines. I mean, that's, that's good. It's rich. And then the interpretation. Solid. Love it. What's it mean? You're getting out of here. You're getting out of prison. You're going to be back with the king. You're going to be reinstated in your position of prominence. we got a lot of dreams in the book of Genesis. Have you noticed that? A lot of dreams. Joseph had a couple dreams when he was in his father's house. You remember when he was younger, 17? His dad, Jacob, had dreams. These two guys have dreams. Soon, Pharaoh is going to have a couple of these dreams. And some of these dreams will even be prophetic. The dreams are prophetic in that they tell the future. They were revealing God's will so that God's people knew how to act. Dreams today, there's a distinction. Dreams today are not revelations from God. We have other revelation from God. Dreams are no longer as they were here revealing God's will so that God's people knew how to act. We now have God's revealed will so that God's people know how to act. Amen. Now God is behind all dreams. God is behind all dreams. And they may be accurate reflections of our subconscious thoughts or accurate reflections of the chili we had for dinner. The night before. So we need to be careful with dreams and how much stake we put in what they mean. James Boyce said, we wholeheartedly agree, 
For a true and trustworthy revelation, we are turned to Scripture alone. This is a doctrine that the Reformers recovered in the 16th century expressed by the Latin term sola scriptura. Scripture alone. We don't need your dreams. We have God's inspired Word. But a lot of dreams in the book of Genesis. We've got to be careful that we don't take the narrative and the descriptive and make it prescriptive and begin to operate as if God is duplicating what He duplicated here in Egypt. Verses 14 through 15. So He interprets the dream. And then He says, Only remember me when it is well with you and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So there's a bit of a plea there that Joseph makes. He's pleading. He says, remember. Remember me. This is a key word. This is a key word in these two chapters. This word, remember, and its opposite word, its antonym, forget. Those are going to appear several times and they are important words in these chapters. So remember, just put that in your mind. Remember that word. Remember. Joseph looks at this man and says, listen, where does Joseph want to be? He says, I'm a Hebrew. This is not my nation. This is not my land. This is not my king. I've been sold into slavery. slavery. I've been imprisoned unjustly. Remember me, because you've got word now with the king when you're reinstated, so that I can be set free. He's hopeful. He's hopeful. But now we've got number two. Another dream. What about the baker? Let me just read the first half of verse 16. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph. So he listens to the first guy. He hears his dream. He hears his interpretation. And he says what we were saying. What a nice dream and what a nice interpretation. I like this guy. I like this guy, Joseph. I like what he has to say. I like his interpretation. This is my kind of preacher. Sounds good. I'm getting out of here. He's going to be reinstated. Things are going to go well. His sermon feels like a warm hug. And so, because of the favorable interpretation that Joseph gave the cupbearer, the baker says, I want to hear from you. I want to download your podcast. Do you have any books that you've written? I want to tap into this teaching. This is what many people are looking for in teaching. Does it make me feel good? Is it favorable to me? Does it make me feel good? Not as interested in, is it true? Is it true? Joseph has no reputation with this man. He's seeking Joseph's interpretation out because Joseph gave a favorable interpretation to the cupbearer. And so people, Paul tells us, will surround themselves with teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. So he says, I want to hear from this guy. But Joseph is a truth teller. Joseph's a truth teller. So he's going to shoot straight. Verses 16 through 19. So the baker, the poor baker, right? Just hear the excitement in his voice. I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. That sounds like a great dream. So what's the interpretation, Joseph? I mean, we got birds in my dream. Everybody loves birds. Nice birds. Chirping birds. Wake up in the morning, open the window. You hear the birds. How nice is that? What is this dream? And there's cake in my dream. There's cake in my dream. This is obviously, I know it's going to be good. It's a matter of how good is it? Because we all love cake. If you have a dream about cake, that's top ten dream. So he looks at Joseph and says, okay, tell me about my dream. What do the cakes mean? What do the birds mean? 
And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Now hold on. I don't know if Joseph's doing this on purpose or not. But so far, the interpretation, if you look above, is identical to the interpretation for the cupbearer. Pharaoh will lift up your head. And then what followed for the cupbearer? And you'll be you know, reinstated to the position you were in before. So here's the baker. Yeah, tell me. Oh, same thing. A few days going to go by and then, and then, and then, and then, and then your head is going to be lifted up off of your body. What do you mean off my body? How does this work? Well, just think about it for a minute. And hang you on a tree. Where do the birds come in? And the birds will eat the flesh from you. That's dark. That's dark. What kind of sick person are you, Joseph? What kind of dream interpretation is this? You got cakes and birds, and you somehow turn that into death and brutality? You sicko? I don't like this preacher anymore. I don't like, well, it's true. It's true. The point of preaching, the point of teaching isn't to make people feel good. It's to impart the truth. Amen. That people would know the truth. Now, Joseph does not shy away from it. Verse 20 through 23, he was right. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, there's where the cake comes in, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. Starts off well for the baker. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. And then a sad verse. Here's the word again. Remember. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <clears throat> then the first part of chapter 41, after two whole years. You see what Moses the author is doing? He's bringing you into Joseph's pain, isn't he? His loneliness, his abandonment. I'm sure his hopes were up when he sent the cupbearer out. I'm sure his hopes were up when he heard that the cupbearer had been returned to his position of authority at the king's right hand. He had planted a seed with the cupbearer, didn't he? And he said, hey, when, you, when it goes well for you, would you remember me? Would you help me out of here? I mean, honestly, can you imagine how his heart must have skipped a beat each time the, the gate or the doors to this prison, to this dungeon would have opened over the next few days, thinking, they've come for me. They've come for me. And then the days turn into weeks, and the weeks turn into months. How discouraging if you're Joseph. It's one thing when, when things don't go your way, right? But it isn't another thing when you get your hopes up and you really think, you really think they're going to go a certain way and you find yourself getting excited. When that plug gets pulled, isn't it far more painful? Isn't it far more discouraging? He was not remembered. Instead, Joseph is forgotten. Forgotten again. Chapter 41, verses 1 through 7. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Verse 8. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt, and all its wise men, Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. These 
magicians are not magicians like we might think of. These were not illusionists. This isn't David Copperfield and David Blaine. They don't have a deck of cards in their pocket. These are cultic officials. They were divinators. They were men who were believed to be in communication with the spiritual world. And so if you needed information from the spiritual world, you would call in these magicians and they were supposed to dial up these numbers that only they had and they were going to get information for you. It's divination. Many Christians still do this. Many Christians still do this. They have a dream and then they go and find a dream interpreter. And they ask the person to interpret their dream. These men are not different from the magicians that we read about here in Egypt, though they call themselves Christians. I've had people tell me dreams. I've had people tell me dreams, and then there's this sort of awkward pause after they tell me the dream. Like, they're waiting for me to say something. I, 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 got, I got nothing to say. Well, what, help me figure this out. What does this mean? Uh, don't eat Indian food again. That's what your dream means. That's a really weird, crazy dream, and obviously it was too spicy. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's, that's say it the Lord. Don't eat Indian food. I don't know. I don't, that's above my pay grade. I do not know how to interpret your dream. I had a, I had a horrifying dream a couple weeks ago. I understand the Lord is behind all dreams and I don't have any dreams without the Lord saying you can have this dream and here you go and He may use it for His good and for His glory, but this business of interpreting these dreams is foolish, friends. I had a dream the other night. It's terrifying. I never remember my good dreams. I only remember the bad dreams. I hate that. I forget the good... I, I remember the good dreams for like 10 minutes and then I can't remember what they were. Is that normal? I had this dream and it was about 18 years down the road and uh, my kids were in the dream, uh, four boys and my, my girl. And, and first there was this thing with the boys and I had this connection with the boys and we had this great relationship, right? I had this great relationship with Peyton and Brady and Jackson and, and, and Blaze and it was, it was just wonderful and then in the, in the dream, I turned to my daughter, Avery, who's like 20 years old or something in the dream. And the nightmare is that I had spent the last 18 years connecting really well and identifying with my boys. And I had no connection with my daughter. And she didn't want to have anything to do with me. I think I told my wife. I was totally disturbed by it. Now, can you guess what I did as soon as I woke up? Do you know where I went? I went to go find a two-year-old girl in her crib. Right, you ever do that? You wake up from a dream and you're like, I need to, you're just irrational for a bit and I need to figure out if this is real or not because that's terrifying me. And so I go into her room and okay, there's not, not a 20-year-old girl in a crib. That would have been another nightmare. All right, okay, good. That's two. How big? All right, that looks right. Haven't lost any time here. No interpretation. Not prophetic. But can you guess what I was praying for that morning? The Lord used it. I said, Lord, don't, please, don't let this happen with my little girl. Verses. 9 through 13. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted us, so it came about, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. So here's the word remember again. He is, Joseph is being remembered by the couple, a couple years have gone by. And he has forgotten. God had to give Pharaoh two crazy dreams to prompt and jog the memory of the cupbearer 
Oh, I remember. I remember this man Joseph in the prison. You should talk to him. Because he was able, unlike your magicians, he was able to interpret our dreams. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you... I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can't interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh. He gives a great answer. He said, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Here it is again. He gives God credit. Now by favorable, he doesn't mean you're going to like the interpretation. He means that he's going to favor your request to hear the meaning and he'll give you the meaning. But it's God. It's not me. Can you imagine the temptation for Joseph to take credit at that point? How exalted would he have been if he was able to pull this off? Take credit. He'd be exalted far above all the other magicians in the land, but he stops his now. He, he corrects Pharaoh before he interprets his dream. The king he says, well, let me make a correction. It's not me. It's God. So tell me your dream and we'll see what we can do. Verse 17. 17 through 24, I'm not going to read it. Pharaoh just almost verbatim to what we read earlier in chapter 41. He tells Joseph about his two dreams, and then Joseph responds in verse 25. Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So the first thing Joseph tells Pharaoh is what God will do. And now he tells Pharaoh what Pharaoh should do. That's presumptuous. Who is Joseph in this court? He's just been dragged out of prison. He's a prisoner. So he interprets the dream and says, this is what God is going to do. And Pharaoh, this is what you should do. That's gutsy. He looks at Pharaoh and says, now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. That's a pretty good plan. That's, that's pretty good off the fly. Just shooting from the hip. I can't make plans like that. I am slow. I have, to th I have to think. My wife thinks like this. She just right off her feet. And so I'll often look at my wife and say, what should we do? <laughs> what, 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 do you, what do you think? And she'll say, oh, well, A, and, and then B, and then C, and, and then D. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was thinking, right? <laughs> think, all right, I'm going I'm to pray about it. I'm going to pray about it. I need to think about that. I don't know about that. I go pray, you know, two hours in my office or something, a few days. So that's a good plan. That's a really, that's a really good plan. And then, she lets, and then she lets me go. I could take credit for it and no one knows. She thinks really well off her feet like that. I don't, I'm not like that. It takes me more, takes me more time. Joseph is like that. Just shoots from the hip. This is what you need to do. You need to put somebody in charge. That person needs to put others in charge. For these first seven years, you need to collect one-fifth of everything. You need to store it up. And then when the second seven years hit, you need another administrator, and he's going to need to distribute everything, and you make sure that the people are fed. 
And that will get you through the next 14 years. A pretty good plan. Verse 37 and following. This is what you might call a promotion. <laughs> a, a promotion. Is Joseph starting off in the mail room in this corporation? He is not. He is starting off in a dungeon. Okay, he's in a dungeon right now. He's in prison. He's at recess. He just was brought out for a little bit. But he's, he's going to have to go back to the dungeon. But listen to the promotion he gets from Pharaoh. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his great signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Wow! Wow! That is rags to riches. That is quite a promotion. Did you hear all that? Verse 40 and 41. He is set over all the land of Egypt. All my people, Pharaoh the king said, all my people shall order themselves as you command. He's given gifts. Verse 42 and 43. What does he get? He gets a ring. A, that's not, he gets a ring, a very special ring with the signet of the king on it, giving him the authority of the king. He gets a new robe. Not another robe, Joseph. You may want to reconsider. Are you sure you want? Robes get this man in trouble. <laughs> a lot of trouble. A gold chain? Who doesn't want a gold chain? I picture like, a, my boy's been into A-team lately. So I picture this Middle Eastern Mr. T. I don't know if it's accurate or not. He gets a gold chain. What else? A chariot? A ride? Right? This is quite the package. Doesn't stop there. Verse 45, he gets a new name and a new wife. That's quite a promotion. And by the way, you know, in addition to this job and this jewelry and this new car and all these great medical benefits and dental benefits and optical benefits and you've got life insurance and on and on and on. And what's behind door number three, this beautiful woman, she's yours. Welcome out of jail. This is all for you. And people bowed down to him and worshipped him. They bowed down to him. Can you imagine the temptation that that would have been for Joseph? Can you imagine the temptation? People bowing down to him. Some of you say, I, would, I don't want you take the high road. I, don't, I would never want people bowing down to me. Really? Would you like everybody to do exactly what you told them to do? Of course you would. Of course you would. Why? Because you'd fix everything. You know the right way to do everything, don't you? If you could be in charge, wouldn't that be nice? Things go your way? How tempting would that be for Joseph? He's given everything from rags to riches. We'll come back to this in one of our final observations, but let me just say this for now. This is important because we could begin, as many do, to misinterpret this story, this account at this point. This passage is often used by false teachers promoting a prosperity gospel. See? See? Hold out long enough, and here's the big payoff. Be faithful, 
and material and physical wealth in this world is just around the corner. Just be good and be right and do the right thing and be faithful. But the Gospel is God, not prosperity. The Gospel. Gospel means good news. The good news is God. The good news is not prosperity. The good news is not that God is a means to an end. That Jesus is a lottery ticket. And if you follow God, it will lead to these great things that you want. The great prize that we get as Christians is God. It's God. It's the giver. And if He never gives us a gift in this lifetime, to live as Christ, to die, is gain. Paul says, God is the Gospel, not prosperity. The good news is God, not prosperity. So we need to be careful at this point that we do not begin to think that Joseph is here receiving his big payoff from God for his many years of faithfulness. Verses 46-49. through Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt. And he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it for it could not be measured. This obviously was a profound administrator because do you see what he pulls off? They tax all the people in Egypt. How much do they tax them? How much do their taxes go up? 20%. We've got a tax hike coming, people. How much? 20%. What? 20% of what? Everything. Everything. What are you going to do with it? Right? What kind of social services is this going to pay for? How am I going to benefit from this? What's going to be the return? Where are you going to put all this money? In a barn. In a barn. And it's going to sit there for year after year after year. You think that was easy to pull off? No way. 20% tax on the people. Again, Joseph is a man of extraordinary abilities. For now, let's skip verses 50-52. through The account of the births of Joseph's sons. We'll come back to it in a final Observation. Let's finish out the chapter. Verse 53 through 57. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. So Joseph had said, There was famine in all the lands, but in the land, all the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so Joseph becomes the Savior of, quote, all the earth, end quote. Does that remind you of someone? He's pointing forward to someone who would be the Savior of all the earth, who would go from humiliation to exaltation to save His people, just like Joseph. Three observations. Three observations based on these two chapters that I hope you'll find helpful. Number one, and this is in two parts. Number one, the first part, Joseph has become a man of character. This is true. Joseph has become a man of character. There is depth to his godliness. There are deep roots to his godliness. This is the difference between someone who is godly and someone who has godly character. There's a difference, isn't there? When someone has been tested and when someone has been tried and someone has been refined and someone who has been through bad spiritual weather. Well, Joseph is not just the godliness when he was 17 where he did what was right and he was a good boy. 
this goodness of his has deep, deep roots right now. He's like an oak tree. That's character. We've got an oak tree back behind our house. It's one of the things I love about living in the Sacramento area are all the oak trees. I love oak trees. But the other night, it was raining. You remember? It was storming. And the wind at one point was blowing pretty good. It was about 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. I was out late at a meeting. And I'd come home. And I didn't think it was going to rain that bad. And I didn't have a chance to do certain things that I need to do around our house and on our property if we're going to get a lot of rain. So I'm running around in the dark. And I've got a flashlight. And I'm trying to get everything secure for what looks like a pretty big storm. And at one point, I'm standing under these tall eucalyptus trees that we have, and this enormous gust of wind blows through this field that is just south of our house and almost knocks me over. And above me, I start to hear this crackling sound. And I think for a moment, I'm going to die. <laughs> a tree is going to fall on me. These are big trees, and I do not trust these eucalyptus trees that I have. I do not trust them because I watch when the strong winds blow. Tell you what, they bend way too much. <laughs> way, way too much. And I turn, and what do I see? I see the oak tree. You can barely tell the wind is blowing, it's just not moving. This is character. Joseph is a man of character. But here's the second part to this first point. Joseph has become a man of character and he has been forged by affliction. Now this second part answers the question. Okay, I see Joseph. Here he is. He's that oak tree. He's a man of character doing what is right and godly in the face of great adversity. Well, how did he become that way? He was forged by affliction. He was forged. And we use that word on purpose. Because how do you forge something? How do you, when you have a piece of metal, a piece of steel, how do you forge it into something useful? Heat and hammering. How does God bring about character in His children? Heat and hammering. We've done this. We've done this before. The first thing you do is you heat up the steel so it's extremely hot and malleable. And then you put it on another surface and what do you start doing? The metal hammer, you start whacking it. Just whack, 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 whack. Sparks flying. Whack, whack. Until finally, it's in the shape of something useful. God forges character in His children. And do you know what He uses? Affliction. That answer would surprise some of us. Surprise some of us. How's a guy like this become so godly? Uh, it must have been his parents. It wasn't. It must have had a good supportive family. <laughs> Not exactly. Good church. No. No. It's in Egypt. He didn't have any of those things, did he? Did somebody hand him a silver spoon? No. Did somebody pay for his college? No. How has he been forged into a man of great character? Affliction. Specifically, privation, suffering, and disappointment. These are the tools of our God. Privation. I mean, he's been deprived of even some basic needs at times. Been enslaved. <laughs> Suffering and disappointment. He's gone from the special love of his father to hostility from his brothers. From a pit to slavery purchased by Potiphar. He was falsely accused of attempted rape and thrown into prison. And then his glimpses of hope in prison dashed on the rocks through being forgotten by who he thought was his new trusted friend and ally. Most of us have not been through this kind of affliction. So much suffering. So much injustice he suffered. 
So much disappointment. So much betrayal. So much fuel for resentment and bitterness. Right? All this suffering, all this injustice, people you're supposed to depend on betraying you. And surprisingly, what does it turn Joseph into? It has turned Joseph into a man of great character. Why? Because these were tools in the hands of his God. The suffering, the privation, the affliction, the the disappointment, the loneliness. It was what God was using to prepare him for what he's going to have him do. Psalm 105.18, the psalmist is talking about Joseph in prison, says, His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. And Pastor James Boyce says that when this happens, the iron gets in a man. And the iron either gets in a man's heart or in its backbone. Where did the iron go in Joseph? Did it harden his heart against God? Did it cause him to shake his fist at God? Like suffering will do for so many? It caused him to raise his arms to God. To praise God. The same sun that hardens the clay melts the ice. God has forged Joseph. And the suffering sent iron right into his backbone. Immovable. Faithful. A man of godly character. Isn't the crucible of suffering and disappointment where you learn whether or not a person truly loves the Lord? How does one respond to affliction? How does one respond to suffering? Friends, the one who does not know God and the one who does not love God shakes their fist at God. And if that is your response, you should be alarmed. You should be alarmed. But the one who responds to the wounds and the one who responds to the affliction, to the suffering, by raising their arms to God and saying, where else would I go, is one in whom the Spirit of God dwells because we don't do that naturally friends it is only by God's grace so the things he has learned Joseph that is he has not learned from college or in a textbook you cannot learn these things I don't you've learned this that there are things that you cannot learn in a classroom or in a textbook you've said things like God teach me patience You made the mistake of praying that once. (laughs) God, give me patience. And then what is the next thing you did? It's what I did. You went to Amazon and you entered patience. And then you had it overnighted. (laughs) Because you were impatient. You needed it tomorrow. Because I need to learn to be patient very, very quickly. And you read the book on patience. You thought, now I'll be patient. It's like reading a book on humility. This is not how these things are forged in us. You cannot learn something like patience through a textbook. You cannot learn things like patience through abundance. You think it's good to just have everything handed to you and for everything in your life to go well? That, friends, is disastrous to your soul. Disastrous to your soul. We do not learn these kinds of lessons through abundance. We only learn them through affliction, through privation, through suffering, and through disappointment. God is gracious to us so often when things do not go the way that we would like them to go. Second observation. Joseph has been forgotten by everyone but God. Literally. We think sometimes that we've been forgotten by everyone but God. It may be true for some of you. Most of you, that's not true. For Joseph, it really was, wasn't it? Forgotten by everyone but God. Joseph has learned thus that he cannot put his trust in man, but he can put his trust in God. 
You can trust people, but you cannot put your trust in people. That's ultimate trust. And it only belongs with God. Joseph learned that the hard way. I wonder if some of you have learned that the hard way. Isaiah 2.22 Stop regarding man in whose nostril is breath, for of what account is he? Isn't that great? Isaiah says, stop trusting people who breathe. Like, how much can you trust that guy? He has to breathe just to live. Plug his nose and he dies. It's a pretty good point. Trust the one who doesn't have to breathe. Who's not dependent on air. God. 2 Timothy 2.13 If we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Psalm 146, 3, and 5, and 6. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Jeremiah 17, 5, and 7. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. And Psalm 118.8, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And so Joseph had learned that he could not put his trust in man, but only in God. Ultimate trust can only be given to God because God alone is ultimately trustworthy. You see, even in my relationship with my wife, she knows this, that I am trustworthy, but I'm not ultimately trustworthy. I will fail. I will sin against her. I will not always do the things that I say I'm going to do when I do them. I will let her down. I do not have a track record even to boast of. So while she can trust me, she cannot trust me ultimately. Friends, do not look to have needs met in people that should only be met in God. Who could even stand under the crushing weight of that burden? Even those you trust most. You've got a rock-solid husband, praise God. You've got a rock-solid wife, praise God. Rock-solid parents, great. God, great, good, praise God. You can trust them. But you should not trust them ultimately. You should not put your trust in them. And you should not look to them to meet needs that only God can meet. Those expectations will lead to them being crushed and great disappointment for you. They're not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. How Joseph learned. Everyone's forgotten me. Quite literally, but not God. And then final observation. Joseph's great prize is God. So I'm going back here to what I mentioned earlier. Joseph's great prize is God. The riches, in other words, the riches of Egypt are not his payoff. God is his Pay off. I mean, listen to all the things that he's received, remember? He's put in charge over all the land of Egypt. He gets a new ring, a new robe, a gold chain, chariot. People are bowing down to him. He gets a new name, a new wife. But is this even a dream come true for Joseph? That's often how this is preached. It's like the Hollywood movie with the great ending, right? He's suffered greatly, but his, all his dreams have come true. Here he is, the prince of Egypt. Nice job, Joseph. Way to hang in there. I bet you this is not a dream come true for Joseph. I'm willing to bet Joseph just wanted to be set free and go home. He wanted to go home. Instead, he's assigned to further servitude from the palace now, not the pit. But he's in the wrong nation. He's in the wrong land. 
with the wrong gods under the wrong king. But what's the biblical basis for that statement that Joseph's great prize is God and that the riches of Egypt are not his big payoff? Because are you sure? This looks like quite a payoff. The biblical basis is in those few verses we skipped in the naming of his boys. Let's read it, verses 50 through 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Joseph gives his boys Hebrew names. That's significant. Everything in Joseph's world is Egyptian. Do you notice the wife he was given? She's the daughter of a pagan Egyptian priest. His master is Egyptian. His wife is Egyptian. His in-laws are Egyptian. His entire life from age 17 to 37 is Egyptian. The last 20 years of his life, he has been in the middle of this Egyptian culture. And yet, when he has the first opportunity to make a clear declaration of his identity and his allegiance, his boys do not get Egyptian names. He gives them Hebrew names. Joseph has not forgotten about God. These riches, I would say, mean absolutely nothing to Joseph, and it is not his dream come true. God is his great prize. And when he has the honor of naming his boys, despite what I'm sure was enormous opposition, he gives them Hebrew names. And what does he name them? You might think he was going to name them bitterness. Resentment? Your name is screwed over. That's going to be your name. Because that's the story of my life. Your name is Frowning Providence. That's your name. Trapped. Betrayed. That's your name. We see into his heart, don't we? So much suffering. So much injustice. So much betrayal. What are you going to name your boys, Joseph? The first boy, he names him Forget. Forget. It doesn't mean that he's forgotten his family. It certainly doesn't mean he's written off his family. You'll see in chapters to come, he loves his family. He, he's forgiven his family. He misses his family. He weeps for his family. But he has forgotten the hardship, which means he is not holding it against God. It's the opposite of bitter. It's the opposite of resentment. The one who forgets. He is not a 37-year-old man with bitterness, resentment, and hatred toward those who had afflicted him. He's a man who has forgotten the hardship who knows the hardship is for his good. This is a man of God. Second boy. He names him Ephraim, whose name means fruitful. So there we may be tempted to think, well, he's talking about fruitful. In other words, there's the prosperity gospel kicking in. Thank you, God. I stuck it out and you've made me fruitful. You've given me all the blessings of Egypt. But notice what he says. He says, I named my son fruitful because God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Does he look on Egypt and all its inherent riches favorably? He does not. He couldn't care less about the riches that he has in Egypt. 
He's saying that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God has made me fruitful. He's using me. He's remembering His dreams early on. He's seeing the character that God is forging in him. He's looking at these two beautiful boys that God has given him. And he's thanking the giver by giving them Hebrew names and saying, thank you, God, where would I be without you? What an interesting thing for him to think. From slave, from pit to slave to prison. Not in the marriage you had envisioned. Not the family you had envisioned. Not the city you had envisioned. Not the life you had envisioned. And yet here he is faithful to God. He loves God. We must not forget that this world is the land of our affliction. No matter how much stuff you have. Because we've got a lot of stuff, don't we? A lot of, I got the gold chains, thank you. I've got the rings, thank you. I've got the chariot, it's right out there, thank you. I have a lot of stuff. What do you mean a land of affliction? I don't get this, Pastor. Talk about sorrow and Christians being sorrowful, and you talk about this, about misery and sadness. And I'm just, some of you, thinking I'm just not getting it. I mean, I'm fine, thank you. This is not your paradise. This is not meant to be your best life now. Your best life is later. With God in the new heavens and the new earth. Friends, this is your Egypt. You're in the land of affliction. Doesn't mean that God isn't going to bless you and give you things. and He loves you, doesn't He? Gives us all kinds of things that we haven't earned or that we don't deserve. But we ought not to expect those things. And we should, as Hebrews 11.10 calls us to, we should look forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's our city. This is not our city. And that's our city because God is there. And God as he was to Joseph, is our greatest treasure. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being good enough to us to give us your word and to give us the ability to think and to reason and to understand what your word has to say. And then thank you, God, for using your word to cut through us like you say it does and to lay us open and, and speak to us deeply. God, for those who needed to be wounded today and need to be convicted today, I pray that You'd bring Your good conviction by Your Holy Spirit. For those who are faint-hearted, for those who are weak that need encouragement today, I pray that Your Word would bring them great encouragement. But I pray, God, that in all of us, we would glorify You. And we would praise You and honor You. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.